Today we're going to do a genre study on JRPGs. Hey everyone, welcome to the 66th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zachavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore and tune in for Game Dev streams at twitch.tv slash Zachavelli underscore. Today's topic was picked by the patrons. If you become a patron, you get to vote on episode topics. You get a special Discord role, and most importantly, it is the best way to support the show. So big thank you to the patrons. If you're interested in becoming a patron, there's a link in the show description. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners, and it's supposed to be a 15-minute exercise for you to practice the themes of the show. And then we read the winner of the last submission on the next episode, if that makes sense. Last episode's game dev challenge was to design or identify a game mechanic that mirrors the narrative, aesthetic, and sound design, or talk about how you would reuse a level from one of your favorite games or personal projects. If you'll remember, last episode was a quick tips episode And we covered multiple topics, and that's why there was more than one topic for the Game Dev Challenge. But there can be only one winner of the Game Dev Challenge, and the winner of the Episode 65 Game Dev Challenge is Bastis. Bastis's post reads as follows. This is an idea I had a while back when brainstorming with Bay for a monthly game jam. I've expanded a bit on the idea since. I think it actually started with a musical idea, an instrumentation idea to be specific. The game is set in a world where everything is either hand-drawn or pixel art, and there are two races, the hand-drawn and the pixelated. You control two bounty hunters slash private investigators called Anna, who's hand-drawn, and Digi, who's pixel made of pixel art. Anna, like all hand-drawns, are quite physical beings. She's strong, she can pick mechanical locks, and throws a mean punch. She's also very fond of her trusted old revolver and her motorcycle. Digi, on the other hand, have other skills. Like other pixeled, and unlike Anna, she she's good with electronics and computers. She has built her own railgun and has a mini computer on her wrist that lets her hack and manipulate any electronics in her surroundings. You control one character at a time and the other one follows along. You take on cases and bounties which lead to situations where there are multiple solutions to the problems. You either use Anna's analog skills, like kick in a door and beat up the bad guy, or Digi's digital solution, hack the fire alarm to lure the bad guy out. Part of the idea came from that I wanted to combine acoustic and electronic instruments for a soundtrack. This is a quick draft, obviously it would be longer, and not recorded on my phone's microphone, and my toddler wouldn't be talking in the background. And Bastis included a little audio clip of the music. I'll play it for you now. So yeah, I'm glad this post won because I think it perfectly encapsulate kind of the idea I was getting at with the last episode about how each of the game's components mirror each other. 
it sounds to me like Bastis actually started with this idea of wanting to combine different instrument groups. And these two juxtaposed instrument groups led to ideas about the game design, which then led to ideas about the narrative world of the game. And because each of these things mirrored each other and led one into the other, the game idea and world feels cohesive. So yeah, it really is the perfect example of what I was getting that. And congrats to Bastis for winning the episode 65 Game Dev Challenge. For episode 66, I want you to pick your favorite JRPG and talk about how it plays to the strengths and weaknesses of the genre. Today we're going to talk a lot about the genre of JRPGs and I'm going to identify the strengths and weaknesses that I think make up or are representative of the genre. And I think it's really interesting because there are so many good JRPGs. It's really interesting to go look at all the different games in the genre and see how they approached it because they might cover the weaknesses in different ways or play to their strengths in innovative ways. And I want to hear about it because I think everyone has a favorite JRPG. So yeah, if you have one that you would like to talk about, just go on over to the Game Dev Challenge channel in the community discord. There's a link to the community discord in the show description. With the Game Dev Challenge out of the way, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today is a genre study episode, and we're visiting an absolutely iconic genre of video games. That genre today is JRPGs, otherwise known as Japanese RPGs. It's kind of strange that the name of the genre makes a distinction as to where the genre is made, but I think they really do have a distinct style compared to other RPG games, so it makes sense that this style would be invented in a certain area. Now, not everyone might be familiar with the JRPG genre. I was born in the 90s, and for kids of my generation and anyone older, it probably seems crazy to not know what a JRPG is. But then I thought about it some more, and I think we may have been the last kids to grow up where JRPGs were at some point in our gaming lifetime a major genre. These days, I don't think your average teen considers the JRPG genre to be one of the biggest. And I think there's a few reasons that it sort of fell from the top, and we'll talk about those flaws later in the episode. But first, I want to do just a little history lesson, or at least talk about the golden age of JRPGs. So role-playing games get popular in the early 1980s, and there's some iterations on the RPG ideas that had come from the West in Japan, and those iterations and evolving ideas eventually lead to one of the first JRPGs in 1986, and that, for me, kicks off what I call the Golden Era, and that game is called Dragon Quest. The series was called Dragon Warrior in the United States until like the mid-2000s, so maybe you know it by that name. But this game was huge. Not just in Japan either, it had some popularity in the US when it eventually made it over here. This is just a side note, but my dad, who is really not that big into video games, loved Dragon Warrior. We had a copy on Game Boy, and I specifically remember watching him play it at night before we would go to bed. So yeah, the series captivated even people who are not traditionally gamers, and I think we'll get to the reasons why that is in a second. Anyways, Dragon Quest was made by a company called Enix, who will eventually merge with Square and become a company that we all know today, Square Enix. Square is the company behind the original Final Fantasy games. And in 1994, they release what I think is 
the pinnacle of JRPGs, that being Final Fantasy VI. Funnily enough, right after that, in 1995, they release what other people consider as the pinnacle of JRPGs, Chrono Trigger. When you talk about the best JRPGs of all time, two games that will often come up are Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger. And this isn't an argumentative piece on why Final Fantasy VI is better than Chrono Trigger or a video game history podcast, but I think it's important to understand the history of the genre to better understand the essence of the genre. And don't get me wrong, there's so much more history to go over. After what I consider the pinnacle, you have games still to go like Final Fantasy VII, Xenoblade Chronicles, Persona 5, and dozens of other games that could probably fit on a top 100 games of all time list. But I think it's that early to mid-90s period where the genre is most pure, and where we can learn the most from as far as what is the essence of a JRPG. To me, there's two major things that are offered in this era of JRPGs that made them stand out. Those two things being quality narrative and fun progression. So let's start with the idea of quality narrative. And I think it's important to consider that quality narrative is not only the reason that some of these games are still relevant today, but also why they were so big at the time. At the time, due to file size limitations and just how games were made, it was actually really hard to tell a large epic story. Couple that with how narrative was just a secondary thing for most game companies, and we can see why JRPGs became popular in this time. The way JRPGs do narrative is different than Western RPGs. JRPGs focus on telling a specific story about defined characters. This is why you play as a main character or main group of characters with defined traits and personalities. Whereas in Western RPGs, it's more about making your own character. And while I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, I do think it's easier to write a story for a main character whose traits are defined. With the player making their own character, you can't say for sure what exactly that character will be like. And for a narrative designer, not knowing what the main character is exactly uh, makes it hard to tell that story. Especially since the entire story is usually viewed from the main character's perspective. So yeah, that's one key difference between Western RPGs and JRPGs. You'll notice in JRPGs, they often have deep and rich characters, and you play as the characters. You don't make your own. And the point of that is to tell a specific story. And I think that first point is what makes them so engaging. They're just really good stories. The player wants to know what is going to happen next. And in its prime, the JRPG had some of the best stories in all of video games. And I think that's the reason why these 90 games are still talked about as much as they are today. It's because their stories are timeless. And I think it shows the power of a strong narrative. Something that for a lot of game devs, including myself, usually takes a backseat to things like graphics and gameplay. The next core thing to talk about with JRPGs and their success in this era is progression. The JRPG games of this era, I think, really laid down that foundational progression hook. And some people might actually disagree with me here. This is where the idea of grinding in an RPG comes from. And some people might argue that they don't like grinding. But for one, I would argue that these games don't have as much grinding as some of the more infamous JRPGs. And also the grinding is really the result of a worse system 
uh, one we're going to talk about in a second in Random Encounters. And also, there are people out there who just enjoy progression and a grind. Look at the popularity of battle passes in modern games. Look at what introducing a progression grind did to the Call of Duty franchise. People enjoy growing things from small numbers to bigger numbers, which many of these games, the best in the JRPG genre, offer. Now, if you compare the progression of these games to what we have today, you might not be impressed, but just know that these are the foundational pieces of how progression works in a lot of video games uh, to this day. Maybe they're more like the, uh, I don't know, the subfloor, I guess. <laughs> the original RPGs, the role-playing like tabletop paper games, uh, started the whole idea of leveling up and progression and all that stuff. That's probably the foundation, but we'll call JRPGs the all-important subfloor. And yeah, like I said, if you compared the progression of these games to the progression of games we have today, I think we've really refined it and made it really good today. But you have to remember, when these games came out in their time, they were the best games for getting that long-term progression grind that people enjoy. And that mixture of great stories and long-term progression is how these games stayed engaging despite their flaws. And they definitely had flaws. First off, let's talk about the combat system. Combat in JRPGs of this era is by far the weakest point of the games. Actually, later we're going to talk about why the best games uh, kind of mitigated this. So I, I will say it's not the weakest point of the best in the genre, but it's a common trope that JRPGs just have slow combat that is not very fun. It's often represented in menu form, and it's turn-based combat. Early iterations like Dragon Quest, your character isn't even on the screen. It's a weird first-person menu versus a static monster sprite. Like I said, the best of the JRPGs try to make turn-based combat as interesting as possible, and we're going to mention some ways that they do this when we talk about certain games later. Another problem with games of this era is how they handle random encounters, or how you get to the battle. When JRPGs were first invented and brought to the consoles, they could only render so many sprites on the screen at once. So it made sense to separate the battle screen and the overworld screen. That way you were saving space uh, and having two different screens to represent two different things and weren't trying to jam it all in on one screen. Remember, one screen can only have so many sprites. It's not really a problem that we have to deal with at all today. So, how do you get from the overworld screen to the battle screen? Well, their solution were these random encounters. Just imagine that you're walking around in the overworld and there's a random chance at any moment that you could get into a battle. And the screen just kind of blinks and then there you are, you're in the battle. I don't actually have problems with this mechanic at its core. I think it can actually be turned into a cool thing, like in Pokemon. Like in Pokemon, walking in tall grass gives you a random encounter with a wild Pokemon. And in that case, it's exciting. Unless you're in a cave full of Zubats, it's fun to find out what Pokemon is going to come up. Maybe it's one you haven't seen before. Maybe it's something you can catch. So yeah, my problem isn't with the mechanics, so long as it's used in the correct way. My problem is how in JRPGs, random encounters are tuned. They're usually turned up to an absurdly high frequency. You might be walking from one place to another, and every five seconds you're abruptly started, and it's like, time to battle. And this is actually on purpose. 
The games of this time prided themselves on how much content they could offer, and they could offer technically more content with random encounters, so in their mind, more random encounters equals more content, makes for a longer play experience, which means it's a better game. But in its implementation, all it is is an interruption of your progress every five seconds. It almost serves as a block or a barrier within the game loop. If you've played an older JRPG before, you will know the frustration of wanting to just walk five seconds without being interrupted. And I think people just tolerated it at the time because, like I said, at its core, the mechanic was driven for technical reasons. And I think maybe there's even a modern-day lesson to learn here. Roguelites today have a similar feel. People like games with lots of content, therefore more content equals better game. That's, that's maybe an extreme oversimplification, but I'm speaking from the frame of a random Steam buyer. Don't come after me. <laughs> Don't come after me for that uh, sentence. Anyways, indies have figured out that you can meet these content demands with procedural generation. But here's the important lesson. We can see that random encounters got stale with JRPGs, and they got stale because they turned the knob of quantity versus quality too far toward quantity. So I think if you're going to procedurally generate content and meet a similar demand with a sort of similar, albeit a much better form of procedural content generation, I think you just have to be aware of that fine line between quantity and quality and know that more quantity is not always better. So now we understand the pros and cons of the genre, I want to talk about some gold standard games. And like I said, this genre is full of classic games. So today I picked a few games that are not only at the top of the list, I think, uh, but they are my personal favorites. So let's start with what I think is the greatest JRPG of all time. And that is Final Fantasy VI, also called Final Fantasy III in North America at the time it came out. I think now with worldwide releases being a thing, uh, we just go off the Japanese number for Final Fantasy, so I'll be calling it Final Fantasy VI, and I think most places you look will call it Final Fantasy VI. I want to take a look at how Final Fantasy VI plays to the strengths and mitigates the weaknesses of the genre that we just talked about. First off, let's talk about story. Final Fantasy VI has one of the best narratives of any game ever, in my opinion. This is the first Final Fantasy to go away from a strictly medieval fantasy setting to something that's almost a little bit more like steampunk. And the story itself, I won't spoil for you, but it takes on some more mature themes like losing and renewing hope, depression, and even some more political things like arms races, rebellions, and torture. It's an incredible story, but I don't want to spoil it, so please, if you aren't going to play the game yourself, at least go watch a video about the story, like a summary or something. I promise it'll be worth it. Besides the story, the game also has great graphics and a killer soundtrack. Just listen to this boss battle theme and tell me this doesn't get you super pumped. So we've established that both narratively and aesthetically, the game is great, but what about the actual gameplay? Well, let's start with the progression. The progression is your fairly standard 
JRPG progression where you level up and gain stats, but it does have a great customization system. There's lots of equipment to aid your characters, and even cooler is relics. Relics are special items that give stat boosts, passive effects, and even new abilities. There's one that allows a character to throw their own party mates at enemies, doing damage to the enemies and waking up the throne member from sleep and confusion. Speaking of doing damage, let's talk about the combat system. Now it is a menu-based combat system, but Final Fantasy IV introduced the active time battle. With active time battle, instead of the boring and not super engaging turn-based battles, each character has a bar that fills up at a different rate depending on their speed stat. When the bar is filled up, that character can do actions. This takes the normally boring turn-based battle and turns it into something a little more fast-paced. There's cool magic and abilities too that let you change the pace of how fast the bar fills up. Combine this with cool attack animations and abilities and the customization we talked about before, and the combat in this game feels a lot better than your typical JRPG. At one point in the game, there's a boss fight where you're fighting a literal train that carries ghosts to the afterlife, and one of the characters in your party has a suplex ability where he normally picks up the enemy, flips them upside down, and smashes them onto the ground. And all I have to say for you to understand how fun the combat is, is that you can suplex the phantom train. So yeah, it's safe to say the combat in Final Fantasy VI is a masterclass on how to make JRPG combat fun. And as game designers, there's lots to learn about how it takes one of the biggest flaws of the genre and fixes it. Okay, let's move on to the next gold standard game that I want to mention. And that is Earthbound, otherwise known as Mother 2. Earthbound is another game that many would consider a masterpiece. And I think it's really interesting how it gets this status, despite the fact that it definitely has some game design flaws. For instance, the battles are menu-based, and they're in that original Dragon Quest style, where it's kind of just a first-person menu that represents you, and there's an enemy sprite on the screen in a trippy, psychedelic background. The health system is interesting and does have a little twist. Your life points actually count down on a roll counter, it doesn't happen instantly and you can negate some of that damage by healing before the roll counter goes down the full damage it was supposed to. So yeah, I guess that's an interesting wrinkle to an otherwise um, just okay battle system. There's also some weird quality of life flaws, like having to withdraw money from a bank instead of just having it, and you can only buy one item at a time, so it takes forever to stock up on a specific item. One thing that is interesting about it, and it did negate the negative of random encounters, is that in Earthbound, they show the actual enemies on the overworld screen. And it has a sort of mini mechanic built in with this. To get into a battle, you have to touch one of the enemies on the overworld screen. And if you can get behind an overworld enemy and touch them, then in the battle, you get to have the first turn. But if they touch you first from behind then they get the first turn. Not only does this system get rid of some of the frustration of random encounters because the player can kind of choose when to go into combat, it gives the player a little bit more agency and a way to actually affect the combat. So yeah, I would say that Earthbound does a few interesting things, but the game design is above averaged at best. So why does this game get considered as a masterpiece by so many? 
Well, I think that's because its narrative is the most crazy, psychedelic, creative, charming, and strange narrative in maybe all of video games. There's really no way to explain it. If I said plot points to you, you would not believe they happened. I mean, at one moment, you're in a neon town where the only way to see anything is by looking at the neon streetlights of the buildings. The problem is, is that there's invisible blockers all over the place, so you have to talk to the townsfolk who, for can some reason, teleport you around the invisible blockers. Also in this neon town, also in neon town, uh, the people speak strangely. Yes means no, and no means yes. So you have to remember that when you're interacting with the menu. There's another part in the game where you have to meditate by literally not doing anything, not touching the controller. Even when the game lies to you and says to do something, you have to resist it. You wait on the top of this mountain, not doing anything, and an extra-dimensional being comes and breaks your legs and your arms and removes your ears and eyes and steals your mind. And that's kind of like a minor... <laughs> that's a minor point of the story. It's more like a character intro. There's a lot of strange and weird things that happen in this game. It is psychedelic and charming and sometimes takes a tonal shift that is straight up scary. One of my favorite quotes about this game comes from the angry video game nerd. He says, I am overwhelmed trying to explain what happens in this game. The better question is what doesn't happen? So yeah, if you don't have time to play this game or don't have the money, I think original copies of Earthbound are expensive. Which, side note, if you want to play these games, uh, you can play Earthbound, Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, as well as a few other classic JRPGs on the SNES Classic, which was that thing they made a few years ago that's basically a modern SNES with all the classic games loaded on it. But yeah, if you don't have the time to play or you don't have one of those and you want to find out what Earthbound is like, go watch that video by the angry video game nerd about Earthbound. It's the best summary playthrough of the game that I've seen, if you don't mind the more adult humor of the show. I'll leave a link to it in the show description. So yeah, getting back on track, through sheer creativity and narrative strength, Earthbound has cemented itself as an all-time great JRPG. So I think there's a, there's a lesson there. If you tell a good enough story, it kind of fixes or kind of hides some of the other flaws. Because by the end of the game, the people don't remember the minor flaws and quality of life stuff. They remember the time that guy transformed himself into a dungeon and you had to go inside him to get a submarine out of him that he accidentally ate to get out. That way you can sail across to the ocean to go to a different place. So whenever we bring up the gold standard games in a genre study, we try to identify what the common thread between the best of the genre has, and we try to learn lessons from that. And I think if the best in this genre do one thing well, it's that they play to their genre's strengths and avoid its weaknesses. Both of our gold standard game examples have a heavy emphasis on engaging storytelling, and like we were just saying, a good story covers up some of the mistakes. They also offer many hours of content with progression, and they do their best to avoid the pitfalls related to the weaknesses like getting away from turn-based combat or avoiding using random encounters. And if we look at how modern JRPGs have evolved, we can see that the genre has pretty much abandoned those weaknesses altogether. 
We didn't even talk about modern JRPG classics like Persona 5 and Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and tons of other JRPGs as well that have many interesting ways of using the strengths and weaknesses of the game to combat the strengths and weaknesses of the genre. I'm sure you can think of an example right now in your head, and that's why the Game Dev Challenge for this episode is to talk about it. So yeah, if you have a really good example in your head, just go on over to the community Discord and post about it. Maybe we'll have to do a part two someday and talk about the evolution of the JRPG up to the modern ones. But for now, I think if you're going to make a JRPG as an indie dev, you need to focus on a few things. Number one, you have to have a great and engaging story. Story writing and narrative design is a whole skill and mastery of itself. So this is one of those places where you really have to be thoughtful about your own skill level and the scope of the game. If you're going to spend money, contracting a story writer to help might not be a bad idea in this case. The next lesson is that you can make a non-engaging battle system or a just okay battle system work if it has interesting progression. Progression like this goes well with people who want to experience your narrative and not have to be as attentive during battles. Sometimes it's nice to just shut your brain off and enjoy a good story while you see numbers go up. I would also say at this point, if you're going to make a JRPG, I would avoid random encounters entirely unless you have a specific reason for them existing. It's old game design that was constrained by the technology of the time, and I don't think it fits modern JRPGs. And lastly, I want to mention a tool. And it's weird because it's not too often there's a genre-specific tool, but there is a game engine out there called RPG Maker, and it's basically a JRPG in a box. It comes with everything you need to make a JRPG. I think RPG Maker is a good tool for making JRPGs, but not a good tool for making games, if that makes sense. Like, if you're going to make explicitly JRPGs, then yeah, it's fine. It does kind of have a cookie-cutter syndrome where a lot of games that are made with it feel the same. And in today's game-saturated environment, I think having a game that feels like everything else is actually really bad. But yeah, if you want to do it just for fun, it totally works. If I were to make a JRPG, one where I would want a good chunk of people to play it, I would make it in a more traditional game engine. With a traditional game engine, you'll have a lot more flexibility to build something that stands out, and I would maybe even get away from the combat system weakness by replacing it with something like a card game, for instance. Doing an innovation like this would be really hard in RPG Maker because I think it's just kind of set up to be a cookie-cutter JRPG. And to attempt innovations on the formula messes with the formula that it's set up to make. So yeah, I think we had a bit longer of an episode today. Let's recap what we talked about. And I specifically chose to study games from the golden age of JRPGs. This is around the late 80s to mid 90s. The two core strengths I think JRPGs of this era have are quality narrative and fun progression. Some of that is because other games at the time couldn't deliver good long narratives and progression due to technical limitations, but I think these two strengths still endure to today. JRPGs focus on defined narratives with well-defined main characters as opposed to Western RPGs which put the player in the shoes of a hero but lets them decide what the hero character is like. JRPGs as a genre have two glaring weaknesses, the presence of random encounters 
and slower turn-based menu-heavy combat. Unless random encounters are being used for a specific reason, I think it's best to leave them in the past. Slow turn-based combat can be innovated on. Remember that Final Fantasy VI fixed the genre's weakness with a time-dependent battle system that was originally introduced in Final Fantasy IV. It also has interesting progression and creative abilities, and it makes combat in that game a joy. Earthbound fixed the random encounter issue by showing the enemies on the overworld and including a positioning-dependent mini-mechanic. Remember that both games cover their flaws with amazing stories. And these stories are remembered and talked about even to today due to their timelessness. Remember that the key, if you're looking to make a JRPG, is to play to the strengths of the genre and avoid its weaknesses. Innovate or leave behind the genre weaknesses like many modern JRPGs have done. Create engaging combat, get rid of random encounters, tell a great story, and have interesting progression, and you'll be on the right track. Lastly, using RPG Maker is fine for making a JRPG, but if you want to make those innovations we talked about before and avoid the cookie cutter syndrome, it will be easier to do it in a traditional game engine. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me at underscore Zachavilli underscore on Twitter and tune in for game dev streams. I've been enjoying game dev streams a lot lately. We've been having some good discussions in the chat. And it's usually a pretty fun and chill time. You should come check it out. That's at twitch.tv slash underscore. Anyways, with that, I'm going to sign off. I have been Zaccavelli, and I will die on the hill that Final Fantasy VI is better than Chrono Trigger. 